Uh, we're continuing our series, uh, Principles for Christian Political uh, Engagement. This is the uh, fifth and final Sunday in this series. Uh, to those of you who are visiting, I've said this most weeks, you know, like I know you come to church and you probably want to escape politics, but uh, I, I laid out the case the first week why it's an important topic for us to talk about. Uh, I assure you that we have no partisan intentions here. We are just honestly trying to look at principles uh, for how we as believers engage uh, in politics. And so whether you're visiting with us or whether you're a member, if you have missed any weeks in the series, I would encourage you to go online, check them out, uh, because, you, you know, like there's important information in each of those weeks, and I uh, simply can't take time to kind of redo all of that, especially because I have an incredibly long message today, and so I've just got to get to it. Uh, but uh, anyway, with that disclaimer, we are uh, continuing with part two of the message I started last Sunday, vote responsibly by prioritizing uh, the issues. Last week, I noted that since government and politics impacts virtually every area of life, and since that means that the issues that we uh, consider when we're voting are numerous, just lots of issues for us to consider, that in order for us to vote responsibly, to vote in a way that fulfills our obligations as ambassadors of Christ and as people who are concerned for both the eternal and temporal well-being of our fellow man, we have to prioritize the issues upon which we vote. I've said throughout this series that our politics as believers are not our own. Our politics belong to God. He looks over the whole of human existence and every area of life, God declares over that, it's mine, it belongs to me, and that includes our politics. And so we have a responsibility to prioritize our voting our support of candidates, our advocacy for issues and candidates in a way that is pleasing uh, to God. We are not free to vote any old way that we want. We have to vote in a way that is consistent with our faith, in a way that's pleasing to God. It's important that we uh, vote that way for a lot of reasons, but here's a, here's a big one. As the creator of everything and everyone... God knows better than we do what is in the best interest of human beings and what best contributes to human flourishing. And so I shared last week that we can prioritize the issues upon which we vote properly in a way consistent with our faith and in the best interest of our fellow man by asking the right questions. And there are four questions that we should ask of each of the issues that inform our voting decisions. By the way, uh, there are sermon outlines on the little bookshelf at the back of the sanctuary if anyone uh, would like those and you were unaware of that. And, and so we uh, use four questions uh, and ask these four questions to inform our voting decisions. And here's the first question. What does the Bible say about that issue? Does the Bible speak about that issue. The second question is, how clearly does the Bible speak about the issue? And then the third question is, what specific policy guidance does the Bible give, if any? 
And then the fourth question we ask, and we ask this question primarily if the Bible is silent on either the issue or specific uh, policy guidance. The fourth question is, what does a Christian worldview suggest is the right position to take? And so when the Bible speaks on an issue, then that's an issue that should be prioritized by believers in our politics. When the Bible then speaks clearly on an issue, that issue should move higher up our priority list. And then when the Bible gives guidance on specific policies, or at least uh, gives us information that, that would suggest specific policies regarding an issue, now we've found an issue that should be among the very highest of our priorities. If the Bible doesn't speak to an issue, then we look at the issue using our minds that hopefully as believers have been transformed by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and we discern what position on that issue is most consistent with what we know about God and about His will for His creation. And so that's a brief summary of what we talked about uh, last week. And so today what we're going to do is apply this approach to three specific issues, three case studies, the case study of abortion, the case study of poverty, and the case study of health care, uh, and specifically uh, health insurance. Did I pick three topics that are are uh, controversial enough for you? All right, that's what I was hoping for. That's what I was hoping for. So case study number one, abortion. Does the Bible speak to this issue, and what does it say? The quick answer is that the Bible speaks to the issue of abortion, and it speaks remarkably clearly. And so I want to share with you just a number, uh, a few uh, uh, biblical passages, and you might want to write these down. I did not uh, put these on the outline for you. You can write them down and reference them later. Uh, but consider these biblical passages. In Luke 1, 41 through 44, we find the following set of the preborn John the Baptist. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. There are a number of things to notice in this verse, in this passage. Notice that Luke calls Elizabeth's unborn offspring a baby. Elizabeth calls the offspring Mary will later bear, Jesus, a child. And Elizabeth refers to her own unborn offspring as a baby and says that baby leaped for joy, which means the preborn baby had to experience joy. David wrote of God in the 139th Psalm, You formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
David speaks of himself as a unique person while still in his mother's womb. And this verse tells us that God is directly involved in what happens with the development of pre-born children. A fascinating passage that, to be honest with you, I hadn't really thought of until this week as I was preparing Rebecca distressed that the preborn Jacob and Esau were struggling with each other within her womb, inquired of the Lord, why am I having so much difficulty with this pregnancy? And here's how God answered her in Genesis 25. He said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Did you catch that? Spoken of pre-born children, two nations are in you. Two peoples were struggling within Rebecca's womb. Friends, the Bible speaks to the issue of abortion, and it speaks very clearly, and here's what it tells us. The pre-born child is a person, and as such... A preborn child should be treated as a person from the moment of conception. Is there specific policy guidance about abortion in the Bible? There is. There is. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 outlines a law addressing the situation where the life or health of a pregnant woman or preborn child were endangered or harmed. Here's what it says. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Theologian Wayne Grudem writes of this passage, this law is even more significant when we put it in the context of the other laws in the Mosaic Covenant. Listen to this. In other cases in the Mosaic Law where someone accidentally caused the death of another person, there was no requirement to give life for life. There was no capital punishment. Rather, what would happen is the person who accidentally caused the death would flee to what was called a city of refuge, and they would serve what ostensibly was like a house arrest, uh, which was a far less punishment than life for life. And here's what Grudem concludes, and rightly concludes. This means that God established for Israel a law code that placed a higher value on protecting the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn child than the life of anyone else in Israelite society. Grudem further points out that this law applied to accidental killing of a preborn child and reasons that if accidental killing of a preborn child was this serious in God's eyes, then surely intentional killing of a preborn child is even a worse offense in the eyes of God. And so here's the conclusion that we come to on the topic of abortion. The Bible speaks about it, and it speaks very clearly. And here's what it says. The preborn child is a person from the moment of conception. 
and we should give to the preborn child legal protection at least equal to that of others in society. What does a Christian worldview suggest? Well, first of all, we don't have to rely on a general worldview approach in this case because the Bible speaks and speaks so clearly. But let's pretend for a moment that we did not have clear and specific guidance in the Bible. What would a Christian worldview, what would a mind transformed by the uh, Word of God and the Holy Spirit, what would that kind of worldview suggest to us? Let me offer a couple of thoughts. A Christian worldview knows that all truth is God's truth. And the scientific facts of fetal development tell us that the preborn are human beings. Science tells us that the preborn child is not part of the mother's body, but is a separate body growing within the mother's body. It is not an organ, it is not an appendage, but a separate human being. As Marco Rubio famously asked in the 2016 presidential debate, what else could it possibly be? Of course, it's a human baby. Is God a God of life or a God of death? The Christian worldview knows that God is a God of life. Did he come to give us life and life more abundantly or did he come to destroy the life? Did Jesus come to destroy the life he created? He came to give life. What do we know about biblical morality? Does a Christian worldview suggest to us that we should offload the consequences of our actions on an innocent party that had nothing to do with our choices? Or does a Christian worldview suggest that adults take re adult responsibility for the adult activities that they engage in? The answer is obvious. Here is the reality. Nothing in a Christian worldview suggests anything that would allow a believer to support abortion. Everything within a Christian framework, a Christian worldview, a Christian understanding of life, it all points to abortion being a moral evil. It points to Christians being fully and completely pro-life. So what have, what have we discovered as we apply these questions to this issue? We discover the Bible speaks about abortion. It speaks clearly about abortion. It gives specific policy guidance about abortion. And a Christian worldview points entirely in a pro-life, anti-abortion direction. This means that abortion and the rights of the preborn should be really, really high on the list of priorities on which Christians base their votes and choose their candidates. Now... I will never tell anybody that they have to be a single-issue voter. I will not tell you that. But you do need to prioritize the issues upon which you vote. And this issue should be really high on your list. In fact, I don't believe there is any issue that should have any higher priority for a believer than this one. I have no doubt that that thought I just shared with you is God-ordained, and I have no doubt that abortion is the moral issue of our time. 
which allows me to say unapologetically what I've said many times, and I'll say again here today, Christians are pro-life. A pro-choice Christian is an oxymoron. There's a joke there that I will leave unsaid. All right. Case study number two, poverty. Poverty. Does the Bible speak to the issue of poverty? Yes. The Bible speaks to the issue of poverty, and it has quite a lot to say. In fact, the number of Bible verses that address poverty is so extensive that we could not even read them all today, much less properly discuss them. And so consider just a sampling of biblical passages about poverty and caring for the poor. First, the Bible makes it very clear that the poor are to be treated with dignity and respect, that they are not to be spoken of derisively. And so here, here we find Proverbs 17.5. This is the Bible that we're about to read here, folks. Proverbs 17.5. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. It's a powerful, powerful verse. The Bible teaches that the poor are be are to be treated fairly and kindly. Proverbs 29, 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Proverbs 14, 31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19, 17, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he's done. Luke 14, 13, when you give a banquet, invite the poor. The Bible's very clear about the need, not just the need, but the responsibility to help the poor. The Bible calls for believers to help the poor over and over and over again. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. In Matthew 25, Jesus taught that when you feed the poor, you give drink to the thirsty, or you welcome a stranger, what you have done for people who are disadvantaged, he considers it as if you have done that for him. That's how much he cares for how much he identifies with those in society who are disadvantaged. While teaching about not worrying about material possessions, but investing in things that are eternal, Jesus told his followers in Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Jesus not only taught that we should help the poor, but that helping the poor has a return on investment that is unparalleled. If you want to use your money for something that will reap eternal dividends, the Bible says, help the poor. 1 John three seventeen is a challenging passage of scripture for American Christians. It says, if anyone has material possessions 
and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And so care for the poor is directly tied to love of God. And so the Bible says to treat the poor with dignity and respect, that they should be treated fairly and kindly, teaches clearly that believers are to help the poor, to give to the poor, and yet the Bible does not hide from the intractability of the issue of poverty, and the Bible does not shy away from the fact that some people are poor because of their choices. Jesus is quoted in Matthew 26, 11, saying, the poor you will have with you always. This at least suggests that the problem of poverty is never entirely fixable. And that's because some poverty is due to poor choices. The Bible says this. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 The believers established a policy among themselves, but the policy was the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. The Proverbs are full of warnings regarding poverty occurring due to poor choices. Proverbs 10.4 says quite bluntly, laziness leads to poverty. Do you realize there was a time in the New Testament where Jesus even chastised people for coming to him to get food even though they were hungry? The reason he did is because they were only interested in him for the material food that he could give them and not for the spiritual food that they really most needed. And so Jesus said in John 6, 26 and 27, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and the fishes and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Do you know what nerve it takes to tell hungry people, um, hey, you're coming to me for food, but you know that's really what you, not what you should be coming to me for. What nerve it takes to chastise hungry people because they came to you for food? And yet Jesus recognized that there is something more important than meeting the temporal needs of people, and that's meeting the eternal needs of people. So the Bible teaches a variety of things. It teaches that the poor should be treated with respect and dignity, with fairness and kindness, and that believers should help the poor, while also acknowledging the, acknowledging the intractability of the problem of poverty and, and acknowledging that some poverty is the fault of poor choices, poor habits, and poor character. None of which, by the way, is an excuse not to help the poor. So if you're like seizing on that, like, well, yeah, you know, someone, it's just their fault. It doesn't mean you don't still help. It's just an acknowledgement that some poverty is due to choices. So the Bible says a lot about poverty, and we could go on and on here today. It speaks frequently about it. It offers many very clear statements there should not be any possibility of a believer considering poverty an insignificant issue based on what the Bible says about it. There just shouldn't. And so it should factor into our voting priorities. The next question we have to ask ourselves, is there specific policy guidance in the Bible about poverty? And there is. There's a good bit of guidance in the Bible that at least suggests certain policy approaches. 
Much of the policy guidance we find in the Bible suggests that the Bible is most concerned with how individuals respond when they have an opportunity to help someone who is poor and in need. Especially in the New Testament, the emphasis seems to be on what will you, Christian man or woman, do when someone in need is right in front of you? Will you give of your own resources to help that person that's in need? Or will you withhold from the needy and the poor? 1 John 3, 17 again. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? If anyone is concerned with how individual believers respond to a person in need. This has led some believers to suggest that helping the poor should only be a matter of individual charity and not government programs. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, so so hold that thought. It definitely means that we're not off the hook for helping those in need right in front of us just because our tax dollars go to support assistance for the poor. You haven't done your Christian duty Because the government helps the poor if there is a poor person right in front of you that needs help and it's within your ability to help. That the Bible acknowledges some people are poor because of their own bad choices can guide us toward certain policy positions. Policy positions that say, you know what, money isn't the real issue here. We need to help people change their lives so that they can provide for themselves. I believe the stat is accurate that says a person has a 97% chance of not living in poverty if they do four things. Graduate high school, get a job, don't have kids until marriage, and then stay married. And so addressing choices in the cases of able-bodied and able-minded people who are poor is a policy guidance that is reasonable to interpret the Bible as giving. All of these views are supported by Scripture. And and taken together, this sometimes leads some Christian believers to conclude that government shouldn't even be involved in poverty. The government shouldn't even be involved in helping the poor. That, That helping the poor should be entirely a matter of voluntary giving by individuals or organizations, especially churches, that are so inclined to help. But friends, there's more we can learn from the Bible than what we've covered so far. We miss much of what the Bible has to say on this topic if we stop where we are right now, which honestly is where a lot of good Bible-believing, you might say conservative Christians, stop. But we need to go on. Especially if we are willing to look at what the Old Testament says. And by the way, the Old Testament remains part of the Bible. Consider some of these passages from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. That direction is repeated in Leviticus 23, 22 and in Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21. 
these instructions that we just read are about more than individuals responding how they see fit. What we just read in these verses is guidance to an entire nation of people, Israel, regarding how they're to care for the poor. God ordained that the entire nation would help the poor by sacrificing part of their harvest for those in need. Now, individuals had to carry out this responsibility, that's true, but the responsibility to do it was codified and it was incumbent upon the entire nation. Here's what this tells us, friends, and I know some of you won't like this. God ordained compulsory giving to the poor for the entire nation of Israel. And everybody said, Amen. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening there. And if you think this wasn't an obligation God took seriously, consider Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. This passage deserves its own series. It's fascinating, but we can't do that today, but consider it. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts, is near. So that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. There will always, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Now... One of the things we can't talk about today, uh, other than this brief mention, is we find in this passage another codified way of helping the poor that was incumbent on the entire nation. Every seventh year, debts were canceled. My goodness, I wish we were entering the seventh year and this still applied. <laughs> Whew, that would be nice. We read over these things and we don't think about what they mean. Every seventh year, debts were canceled. And as far as I can tell, there was no like, well, you know, uh, Methuselah, he's not been very uh, responsible with his debt accumulation over the last seven years, so he's going to have his debts stick. I, I don't think that's the way it worked. So, so we see another codified way of helping the poor. And here's what we see. God cares so much about the poor that he says this to an entire nation. Even if someone in need comes to you for help and you know that all of their debts are about to be canceled because the seventh year has almost arrived, I still want you to be open-handed with them. Every irresponsible thing that they have done over the last seven years is about to be wiped clean. They're going to have a clean slate. I still want you to be open-handed with them because they happen to still be in need right this moment that they're standing in front of you. 
Here's the point. The Bible speaks frequently and clearly about the issue of poverty and how both individual believers and nations should respond to poverty and help the poor. The Bible both gives guidance regarding the importance of individual charity and guidance that helping the poor is a national responsibility. What we've seen is that there is specific guidance we can find on this issue in the Bible. But we've also seen that the guidance is more varied than on the topic of abortion. And here's what this means. It means that Christians can come to a variety of potential policy positions. Can come to a variety of viewpoints that they think are best for how to address the issue of poverty. The most I think we can be adamant about regarding policies toward the poor that are informed by the Bible is that we cannot say it's entirely a matter of personal choice to help the poor and that giving to the poor is only a matter of voluntary giving. Neither can we say that all of the emphasis should be on government programs and personal giving to the poor is something that we are off the hook for. These are the extremes that we have to say, you know, we, we, can't, we can't go to these extremes. But once we rule out the extremes, we are left with a diversity of policy guidance from the Bible from which believers will come to a variety of positions that can be supported biblically. Some will advocate for government to help only those who are physically or mentally unable to provide for themselves and perhaps a short-term safety net for able-bodied people who fall on hard times, but then be more inclined to practice what you might call tough love with people who are able-bodied and able-minded. This is a possible approach from what the Bible has to say on this topic. Other believers will advocate for more robust government programs that provide longer-term support even for able-bodied people who have fallen on hard times because they understand that many causes for poverty go beyond physical and mental challenges. That's reasonable from the biblical counsel. That's a reasonable thing because there are issues beyond physical and mental challenges that lead people to a state of poverty. And so this is reasonable based on the biblical counsel. And this leads us to affirm what I shared with you a week or two ago, what Pastor Dr. Timothy Keller has said on this issue and that is that the Bible tells us we must be concerned about the poor. It even gives us some policy guidance, both individual assistance and national consideration for the poor. But when you factor in all of the various nuances of the uh, guidance found in the Bible, it becomes obvious that while the Bible tells us to care for the poor, it does not exactly tell us the very best way. It gives us a lot of broad guidelines that we then apply. Some will focus more on government. Others will focus more on individuals. Some will want to focus more on helping people become self-sufficient. Others will be more supportive of long-term assistance, even for able-bodied and able-minded people. 
And here's one of the things that I think is so vitally important that we take from this. We have to be willing to show grace toward brothers and sisters who have a different viewpoint on what the best way to approach the issue of poverty is. Your brothers and sisters who favor more robust government help for the poor, that does not make them American-hating communists. It doesn't. Even if you think their thoughts, like their policy positions are like proven to not work, it doesn't make them America-hating communists because they focus more than you do on what the government should do to help people. Likewise, your brothers and sisters who emphasize personal responsibility for people who are able-bodied and able-minded, that does not make them greedy capitalists who don't care about poor people. There are some issues that we really need to agree on as believers. And as believers, we need to agree that poverty is something that we care about and we have a responsibility for. But we have got to recover the ability to agreeably disagree on what is the best way to do some things when the Bible gives us a variety of options as to how to approach a matter. We have gotten to a place where we have this whole set of beliefs. And if you don't share all of my beliefs about every issue, then you're godless. You're a compromising Christian. Probably not a Christian at all. And both sides do this. And there are issues where that might be true, but it's not on every issue. And it's certainly not on an issue like this. So on the issue of poverty, the Bible speaks and says a lot. A Christian worldview should lead us to concern for the poor, knowing this is a high priority issue. But because the Bible gives us a greater variety of potential policy approaches to this issue than it does, say, for abortion, again, it leaves us free to take different approaches. So here's the conclusion. The issue of poverty should be on our priority list. It should be very high on our priority list because the Bible says a lot about it. But I would say it's not as high as issues where the policy guidance is more clearly defined, such as with abortion. If concern for the poor is not high on the list of the priorities upon which we vote, I think that we need to give our politics back to God. It's an important issue. Case study number three, health care, and more specifically, health insurance. Probably good for me, time does not allow me to fully cover this topic. So let me just give you a Cliff's note version uh, of this. Certainly the Bible references health care in that caring for the sick is a very common theme in the Bible and something that Christians are over and over called to do in the scriptures. 
health insurance, unless there's something that I have missed in the scriptures, uh, is a concept that I don't believe exists uh, within the Bible. Therefore, caring for people's health is absolutely a Bible issue, but the Bible is silent on a huge topic related to health care in 2020, health insurance. And so I don't know of any specific policy guidance regarding health insurance in the Bible. Now here's what I would say a Christian worldview would tell us. A Christian worldview, I believe, would say that supporting policies that help the health of our fellow man is something that we should be for, but because the Bible doesn't give much guidance on policy and none that I know of regarding health insurance, Christians will come to different conclusions on what is best. Again, I keep saying this, but Keller's statement applies here. The Bible tells us to care for the sick, doesn't tell us exactly how best to do it. And here's what this means. Believers can be biblically faithful and believe that private health insurance with public assistance for those who can't afford it is the best approach. Believers can also be biblically faithful and believe that some form of universal government-provided health care is best. And I know enough of you in this room to know that you probably are not a fan of government-provided universal health care. But from a Christian Bible perspective, a believer can be biblically faithful and come to the conclusion that that might be best. We can disagree as believers over these approaches, but Christians can take either approach and be biblically faithful. And here's an important point. The same point I made with the last issue. We have to be willing as believers to appreciate when our political viewpoints, even well-intentioned, even though we believe they are guided by biblical counsel, we have to be able to appreciate that our political views are not always gospel truth. And so private insurance advocates should not act like a believer preferring universal health care as somehow supporting something that is displeasing to God. And advocates of universal health care shouldn't accuse their Christian brothers and sisters of hard-heartedness simply because they think private health insurance options are preferable. Amen. Everybody said Amen. So with these three topics and asking these questions of these topics, let me share with you the conclusions that I'm led to. Okay, this is personal now. These are the conclusions that I'm led to. The Bible speaks so clearly about abortion, including giving specific policy guidance. It's a slam dunk from a Christian worldview perspective that Christians are pro-life. And so the place that I'm led to is that there is no clearer issue from a Christian perspective than abortion, which means to me that there is no more important issue upon which I base my vote. This issue is right at the very top of the issues that I base my vote upon, and I believe all Christians should see it that way. 
speaking for myself, I will not vote for someone who gets this issue wrong. I just won't. Now, I wish I had time to talk more about this next thing, but some believers make a different calculation about that. I do not agree with them, but I have heard some of their explanations, and while I do not agree with them, and I think they are wrong, I can understand why sometimes a believer will prioritize a little bit differently. What cannot happen, in my view, is for a Christian to be pro-choice. But if a Christian chooses to prioritize issues slightly different than I do, and again, I wish I had time to go into the reasons that they do that, we have to have grace. We have to extend uh, grace to one another. That, that we're pro-life, but we're calculating things a little bit differently. There's grace for that. But for me... I will not vote for someone who gets this issue wrong. So this is right at the top of, of my voting priorities. The Bible speaks about poverty and speaks extensively about it. It gives policy guidance, but that guidance is diverse, allowing different emphasis in one direction or the other. I believe a Christian worldview absolutely pushes us toward poverty being an important Christian issue. As such... Poverty is a high-priority voting issue for Christians, and, and it should be very high uh, on our priority list. It should be very high on my priority list. But for me, it's going to be high. It's not as high as abortion. And so I have abortion. Of these three issues, I have abortion, and then poverty is just below it. Specifically, health insurance isn't addressed in the Bible. There's no clear guidance on it. I believe a Christian worldview would cause us to desire health coverage for all of our fellow citizens. I mean, why, why wouldn't we desire that? What, what kind of position is it to say, I don't know, Eh, they don't need health insurance. Let them fend for themselves. You remember me sharing that a routine surgery in my family a couple of years ago, just the hospital part of that, one night stay, $67,000. So would a Christian worldview say to someone, in a world where health insurance exists, Eh, fend for yourself. Cover the 67000 Oh, you can't? All right, well, bankruptcy for you. I don't think so. I don't think so. So I think a Christian worldview absolutely causes us to desire health coverage, health insurance for all of our fellow citizens, but we can have significant disagreements about how best to do it and still be biblically faithful. So it's an important issue. It's, it's on the priority list. It also intersects with the issue of poverty. But as a standalone issue, it wouldn't rise quite as high in my thinking as abortion or poverty. So I would slot this one of these three issues in the third place. 
If we ask these four questions of the issues upon which we vote, the answers to these questions should lead us to rightly prioritizing the issues so that we vote responsibly or at least getting close, at least getting close, that we vote in a way that's pleasing to God and in a way that's in the best interest of our fellow man. And so here's my appeal to Vineyard Christian Church. I hope that you will ask these questions of the issues upon which you are going to base your vote in the upcoming presidential election and for every election at every level of government all the time because there are always important issues at stake. I'm out of time, but I wanted to address today how we handle disagreements among believers. I've done that a little bit. Allow me to just quickly say this much. And some of this I I have mentioned briefly before. There are some issues that we have to agree on within pretty tight parameters as believers. Might be a little wiggle room on some nuances of specific things, but some issues we have to agree on. Again, abortion is one of those. But most issues, even ones that are really important, Christians can honestly ask these questions, answer them biblically, and I think they're going to come to the same conclusions that they need to be on the priority list, but they might come to different policy positions and they might come to slightly different orders on the priority list. And so one of the things that I want to appeal to us today is that we have to recover the ability as believers to truly discern what's an issue that we have to agree on and what are issues that we can be biblically faithful but have different viewpoints about. We have to quit playing these zero-sum games that unless you agree with me on everything, you are an evil and immoral person. This is not true, brothers and sisters. And so we should show grace to each other. Even when our brothers and sisters prioritize issues incorrectly, unless there is something that is a clear violation of Scripture, we have to show grace. We may shake our heads in disbelief. We may lament that we have no idea how they came to that view. We may say things like, well, no, I'm not going to say that. But we have to show grace. And so I appeal. Ask these questions of the issues. Allow the Bible to prioritize your issues. And vote according to that priority list that you get from the Bible. If you do that, you have a very good chance of voting in a way that pleases God. And you have a very good chance of voting in a way that is in the best interest of your fellow man. Thank you for your patience. I know I've gone long. Let's stand.